instrument has to adjust to you as a player. So in that sense, like, you know, I know what my technique sounds like in general. So if the instrument is not used to that, it'll begin to develop that. And then together we develop a sound. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories. In this episode, I chat with Rizwan Jagani. Rizwan is an American violist of Indian and Pakistani heritage and is an accomplished solo performer, orchestral and chamber musician, arranger, and producer. Coined the new fit musician, Rizwan reimagines the idea of what the viola can do by combining his Western classical training with other musical genres such as Bollywood, musical theater, pop, rock, and more. You can hear this in his various renditions of popular musical works, many of which have been recognized by leading musical artists and art companies. In this conversation, we discuss Rizwan's winding journey from medicine to music and how he dealt with what other people say. The magical Harry Potter story of how he picked his first special viola, as well as how Rizwan prepares mentally and physically for big concert pieces. Rizwan is an absolute force, and this conversation gave me such creative energy. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Rizwan Jagani. Rizwan, welcome to South Asian Stories. We're so, so excited to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Happy Sunday. And, uh, you know, we were talking before uh, we, we started recording. And Rizwan is a man of, um, you know, many things that he's doing. He's had <laughs> six or seven things this weekend. And, uh, you know, and I've just been sitting on my couch. So he's very accomplished in many different things. And uh, we are so excited to talk about all the things that you've done and, um, you know, your, your amazing journey to where you are today. So I'd love to start at the beginning. Rizwan, can you talk, bring us back to, to your childhood? What was, what was it like uh, growing up? Where did you grow up? And, and, and how, uh, how South Asian was your family? Okay, so um, I've spent most of my life in Plano, Texas, which is a North Dallas suburb area. Um, I, it's kind of funny because it's, this city actually is quite South Asian, sort of populated in that sense. And it was one of the reasons why we ended up moving here. Um, for, you know, good schools and, you know, um, just the sense of community. You could find a lot of people from your own ethnic background in this area. Um, So that wasn't an important component of my upbringing in that sense. Um, I'm half Indian, half Pakistani. My dad is from Mumbai. My mom is from Karachi, Pakistan, and um, born and raised uh, in the U.S., um, and even though I was, you know, raised in this country, the, the South Asian culture and sort of the standards and the etiquette, you know, I grew up on it. So I've had that component in my life. It's kind of funny. I say that, you know, um, I sometimes wish I can escape the, the cultural sort of gates at times of, you know, yeah. what South Asian what it means to be South Asian. The truth is, if you've been raised in it, you'll never escape it. You kind of just learn how to open and close different gates at different times. Um, I, I joke around with people or people joke around with me when they find out I, I was born and raised here. They're like, oh, you know, you probably don't have that much of your culture still in you. Just, and that does tend to 
happen you know um we go through phases where we want to fit in with people around us and then later on in life we kind of realize our identity is important and we are meant to share it and meant to you know rock it for lack of a better way of putting it and that had never been the case with me I always was proudly representing my culture you know if it was Eid or like in Ramadan I would sometimes wear a kurta to school or you know I missed um I would like you know not go to school for important religious holidays um you know I love the music I love the arts I love just you know the clothing I love the sense of family you know I'm an only child so what South Asian culture brings to the importance of family has always been an important element of my life um and I think every now and then I will encounter someone from overseas and then when I they learn a little bit about me they're like you're more South Asian than the South Asians there how did that happen Um, I've had that happen quite a few times or like I've gone overseas and they're like, how are you from America? You know more than the people here. And right. I think it's just, and a lot of it is just, you know, the pride and joy that I get from this culture and getting to, you know, be a representative of it. And it's, it go, I think it goes beyond than just, you know, what you see on the surface, but it's also how it's rooted into your life. Right. No, it's, it's, it's true. And sometimes I, I hear the same feedback that, um, South Asians that have moved to the U.S. or the, or the you know the West cling on to that the, that piece of their culture as more than the you know South Asians who live in you know India or Pakistan or, or or wherever just because you know they're so far away from home they need to have these elements that you know have that hold them closer to their roots or you know where their families came from so I, I definitely definitely agree with that. Um, talk to us about music, right? When did music become a a real part of your life was it early what is your first memory of music so i think what's interesting about music is and this actually is this is funny because this actually follows me even into my 20s um where you sort of hear a song or you hear a piece you have no clue what the name is you have no clue you know who wrote it or who composed it but you know the melody and so i take it that my parents at some point especially my dad used to listen to classical music so i knew a lot of famous classical pieces before i ever touched my instrument viola um so then when it came time to listening to pieces and i was like oh wait a minute i've known this since you know i was a kid or you hear a cell phone ringtone that happens yeah. to be the same melody as that classical piece and it's like oh it's that piece again um right. And then even in general classical music aside my mom loves you know pop and those type of styles so I grew up listening to like you know Backstreet Boys ABBA <laughs> all these yeah. and those are you know those are songs that stick with you you know you don't forget them that easily like everyone knows you know Mamma Mia Dancing Queen or I Want It That Way by Backstreet Boys and so when you grow up and then those songs then you begin you become familiar with you know composers songwriters bands artists and then you kind of just taken everything around you. So for me, I think even like single digit aged Rizwan had always had music around me. I also like to think I come from a musical family. Um in Islam, uh a lot of people do recitations and my mom's side, my mom and her sisters and her mother do a lot of um you know Urdu Islamic recitations and um you know there's an element of singing there's an element of you know understanding pitch and all these other things that which of course they didn't you know conceptualize but they would just you know do the pray- they would just do the prayers and so 
every and so I feel like even from that line of my family I felt like I had some element of musical experience and even for myself I do a lot of um, religious recitations and I you know keep all these things in mind so I do feel like it's been in my blood either through my cultural religious side or just you know my upbringing what you hear on the radio um or you know cell phone ringtone and I and I feel like music is one of those things is like once you're exposed to it in a way it never fully leaves you for even sure. even if um even if it's something for example you haven't heard in years or you know something you haven't done in years you know, you and you, your the human body is pretty remarkable in the sense that it remembers how to do things. Um, you know, when I tell people that you know I play an instrument or whatever, and then they tell me they tell me they've played an instrument, and then they're like, "Oh, I wish um, you know I never quit." And I'll be like, "You know, if you picked it up again, you'd be surprised how much your body remembers." And it goes to show in many different ways the profound effect that music has on the soul. Um, for me, it's not even just, you know, a sense of enjoyment. It's a sense of, of living life, um, kind of, you know, kind of just being able to connect different emotions to different things that I hear, things that I perform. And it's a, it's just a different way of expression for me. Mm -hmm. And it's also, and it's a, it's a source of joy. It can also be the source of stress just because I do it for a living now. But at the same time, it's just something, you know, I'm, so happy that it is part of my life and I'm kind of grateful to my parents uh, in the sense that they had exposed me at a very young age that I knew about all these things so that way I wasn't one of those kids who you know if Beethoven or something came on the radio I didn't want to turn it off because I was like oh it's classical music I ended up enjoying it and it's actually some of my favorite music to listen to that's great um, I I want to know you know I have this image of my head of like you know you know, young Rizwan, when you picked up the viola for the first time, was it kind of like when Harry Potter picked up the wand and was just like that blow of, of the air where he's just like, <laughs> you know, this is my instrument. Was that the same feeling for you? So the viola entered my life in a very interesting way. And okay. I think the, 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 the Harry Potter wand analogy applied to later in my life um, rather than to earlier when I was starting the instrument. I came to know about the viola through a friend of mine. He's about, uh, his name is Ahmad Zedi. He's about two, he's two years older than me. And he was in his school's orchestra program. And we were in the same sort of feeder school district. So I was actually going to go to his school and have his orchestra director eventually if I chose to do orchestra. And I just remember thinking that, oh, if he thinks viola is cool, it must be cool. And that is actually why I picked the viola. I kid you not, you know, every, um, every, uh, one usually picks violin or they pick cello. It's like, who thinks of viola? I mean, I mean, we all, I mean, the orchestra makes fun of us for that matter. Yeah. You know? But, you know, I was just like, oh, if he thinks it's cool, must be cool. I picked up the viola and, you know, I hated playing it for the first two years. When I, reali <laughs> when I realized the bitter truth that we don't get melody that much in orchestral pieces, um, you know, every now and then we get like, you know, four bars of melody and then you know you just milk it for all it's worth or something like that but you know violins are the typically um typically the melodic driven force of the orchestra and but in my third year of playing my parents bought me my first instrument I was renting up until then and then I just realized what an incredible instrument it was this like the sound I could get out of it and I just felt like my character as a human being rooted well with this instrument um so I, 
You know, I always, I mean, I'm a, I'm a different kid in the re- in the re- I'm a, re- a different person in the realm of South Asians in that sense. You know, a lot of them did violin. I was the one doing viola. Um, you know, I, in general, a lot of people do sports. I was more an artsy person. Um, and I, and I did a lot of different things that you would consider your stereotypical South Asian high schooler, middle schooler to do, but there was just something about the way the instrument sounded that just pulled me in. And I just felt like, you know, this, this instrument is different and special in its own way. And then, you know, as I was discovering myself growing up, I was just like, you know what, I'm different and special in my own way. And I had sort of like an expressive voice that allowed me to convey that in that sense. The Ollivander's yeah. uh, Harry Potter moment happened later in life when I was looking for different instruments to yeah, sort of Yeah, tell us about that. So um, for about nine years, I concertized on this beautiful viola that was made in Plano, Texas by a Chinese luthier here named Kaelin Zhang. And I had been playing on some of his instruments for about two, three years. Um, my first viola that I ever owned was by him as well. And I remember taking in my instrument for like a small cosmetic repair. And he said, it's going to take me a day to finish it. And I said, okay, great. I need an instrument to use at school. So he gives me this instrument and I absolutely fall in love with it. And that was my Ollivander's Harry Potter moment. Cause I played <laughs> that instrument and I was just like, Oh, I love it. It sounds fantastic. It does what I needed to do. And I only played like one other instrument, you know, when I was searching for a new one. And then um, I, my parents got that instrument for me when I, when I became an Eagle Scout. Um, so it was my Eagle present and I still have this instrument. I concertized on it for nine years. When I finished my master's, however, I discovered that my technique had gotten to a point where I needed a better viola. This Got instrument it. was like, you know, an advanced student, like sort of instrument that I'd kind of tweaked along the years to make it work for me. And it did, did that and more. But then when I played some very nice instruments, including some very old antique violins um, that were like $10 million Stradivarius violins, I ended up learning. I was just like, I was like, okay, now I see why professionals like these things. So I started searching again and I played about 40 violas in like, a, you know, the professional level price range, so to speak. And a friend of mine in New York named Lukasz Vronsky, I'd known him, I've known him now for about three and a half years. Um, was working on a viola. And he said, you know what? Search, play as much as you want, but I want you to try this instrument when it's ready. And I guess he finished it with me in mind. And so when I played it, within 20 seconds, I knew it was the one. So there's wow. my Harry Potter moment number two. And yeah. and the, the picture that I sent you, that's the instrument that is in that picture. Um, so it's kind of like I... And in when you discuss, when you're playing different instruments to discover what you want to play, you know, for a good chunk of your career, maybe even your whole career, you want to think about, you know, how you are as a performer and how you pour yourself into your art and how the instrument does, uh, takes that and sort of, you know, pushes it out to the audience in that sense. And in that sense, you know, for me, like I was so picky, not to mention it was a, you know, huge price tag. So I was very picky in the sense that, you know, I knew what I, I, I knew what I wanted. I knew the sound I wanted. Now, can I, can I as Rizwan get that out of whatever I was, you know, touching and playing? And I think that was another part of the whole, you know, quirkiness of Rizwan trying to get to know the quirkiness of an instrument 
and that connection being formed as a way of sort of artistic expression. Yeah, man, I have so many questions. One of the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, you're, tr- you know, you, at these different stages of your career, right? You're trying different instruments out and it was like, you know, this instrument is, you know, better for a student or advanced student. This one is someone who's reached my skill level and, and this, this, uh, this instrument matches that. How do you evaluate that? Is it a gut feeling? Is it a feel? Is it anything objective? Like when you're looking at instruments, because someone who's comes from a non-music background or minimal music background, and many listeners probably do, you know, musicians are kind of like a, like on the black box where you're just like, wow, they can do amazing stuff. But <laughs> like, how do they like, you know, actually do it? Like, so that, like, how did you get the feel of the right instrument? Like, is there a process you follow? So usually when we are testing out instruments, we have like a set of pieces that, you know, with different styles, different approaches to try out on the instrument to see how it responds. Um, a lot of people describe that, you know, when you find the one, it's like falling in love. And that is not an exaggeration. It is 100% fact. And in the sense that, you know, you play even just a first note on it and you hear the sound that comes out of it. And that sound invites you to play more when you want to discover more. And that is sort of the thing. It's really just sort of like instinctual attachment you end up developing from the very get-go. And a lot of times it's like, you know, yeah, you can't guarantee on the first, you know, two notes that you play. But it's like, you know, if you can, those first two notes invite you to play more, which invite you to play more, which ends up resulting in you purchasing the instrument. So then every time you open your case, you're invited to practice. You're invited to perform. You're invited to discover new elements about who you are as an artist through your technique, through your sound through the, the colors that you can produce through music um, that, you know, you want to share with people when they hear it. And, you know, I, even for me, when I was doing all these different, you know, I was very blessed in the sense that my parents made sure that, you know, if I was doing something, I would do it to the best level. So, you know, they helped me get these instruments. They wanted me to, you know, be in good programs because, you know, I never did sports. Um, I was, you know, your science-y kid originally, and I, we can talk a little bit more about that, but it was kind of just, you know, whatever I was doing, work hard and be the best you can be, which is where I, which is informing the way I'm sort of approaching even my future. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good, um, um, it's a good thing to talk about because one of the things that the, one of the reasons I started this podcast was one was there are many South Asians who are, beyond the path of what our community expects for us, right? Doctor, lawyer, engineer, scientist, like business person. In those five, six realms, you know, you see a majority of our community. But for someone like you, right, who clearly had an inclination and talent in, in music. And, you know, but it there's a lot of unknown and and risk and not mentorship. Like people don't have things to look up to, like, oh, if he does music, he can be this. How, talk, talk, talk to us about that journey of deciding music is something I want to pursue in my full-time career, what the response was like from your parents and, and, and family, and how did you get past that? Okay, um, this is actually my favorite story to tell because it really just sort of shocks people in that sense. So um, while I do say I was a stereotypical South Asian kid in the sense that I liked doing the science, that I was doing the sciences, 
it was never so much by force. I actually enjoyed it. I did science fair. If you, if you know people from Plano, science fair is a very huge thing here. Um, I was, you know, I tried to, I was an IB. I did all these things, you know, I did internships at the national institutes of health in Bethesda, Maryland as a high schooler. So those were all big feature things. And, you know, I placed first in science fair. I went to state and I even went to school for pre-med. Originally I went to Austin college, which is a very good liberal arts school also known, also known for its sciences. And so I, you know, I started and I had, I was in an environment where I learned very quickly that I, you're not studying to learn. You're studying just to make an A, to get that 4.0. Because I had a colleague, a peer that would say like, you know, 3.6 GPA is not going to get you into medical school. And that's somewhat the bitter truth that, you know, they are looking for the, you know, the, the creme de la creme of your academic, you know, overachievers in that sense who, you know, really push through their subjects. But, you know, at the same time, I was having a hard time gripping with the fact that, you know, I want to learn. I don't want to, you know, take tests the whole time and worry so much about the grade. And that's actually why I enjoyed my internships. I was in an environment where I could learn and do it very well. I ended up becoming one of the best interns in my lab. And my PI apparently still remembers that every time he sees my aunt, because my aunt helped me get this job. Um, and that was one, of, and that was actually what drove me to science fair. It wasn't so much I was chasing the the ribbon or the cash prize. I was just very happy to be there and share what I had worked on, whether it was perfect or whether it wasn't. It was just something I could be proud of and show. That wasn't the case when I discovered the world of pre med academics. So I did pre med for a year kind of got a little depressed and I was just like, you know, what the heck is happening? This probably isn't for me. And my mom's a doctor. So you can tell she was very disappointed when she decided, when I decided I didn't want to do medicine. So I decided to go into engineering, specifically aerospace, because I'm a, I'm an accomplished aviation geek. I love airplanes. Um, I love aeronautics. I was talking about challenger disaster from 1986 as a 10 year old, because I did the research for fun. Uh, yeah, you never hear that, <laughs> but that was, I enjoyed it. And I still enjoyed actually during quarantine, I was watching like, you know, shuttle documentaries and whatnot. So, you know, it's still something that's part of me, even with medicine, I'm still into the sciences. So I'm following, you know, what's happening with COVID. Um, but I learned very quickly that math was not my best friend. And I was actually majoring in like physics, math at Austin college, just so I could get ready for an engineering courses at a different school. But um, I learned very quickly that math was not my best friend and I did poorly in like calculus three. And then the second, the second semester of my third year, my junior year, I was in a differential equations class and we had our first quiz and I get a 10 out of a 100. And I'm telling my parents that, you know, hey, this isn't working out for me. And my parents are like, you know, if you work hard at it, you'll do fine. At around the same time, I had been gifted a lot of amazing musical opportunities at my school. Like I did um, the homecoming concert, which was a side-by-side -side with alumni and faculty. And I was the only student violist that they had picked for that. And we had done like this beautiful piece by Bach, the Brandenburg Concerto. And I had qualified for a music performance competition as the only violist in the entire state. Wow. Um, 
And so I was noticing all these signs. I was like, okay, the math sign is clearly showing me maybe you don't do math, but the music yeah. sign is showing me that, you know, maybe this is something you need to pursue. And I had a long conversation with my parents. I had a long conversation with my cousin who I was, who I'm very close to. And they were all saying like, you know, don't be hasty. Think about it. You know, maybe this isn't, maybe you're just, you know, acting on emotion. I hung up those phone calls, wrote a few emails, talked to my mentors, signed some paperwork, and boom, I was a music major in my third year of undergrad. Um, and then at the way at Austin College it works is this, that you have to have a major and a minor. So I was minoring in music and I turned that into a major. And then I had just come back from a three-week study abroad in um, Chile, in Viña del Mar, Chile, uh, for a Spanish requirement. And then I figured out that the Spanish degree for a minor was actually very much achievable in a year and a half. So I added a Spanish minor. Um, much to the chagrin of my parents, I told them after I did all this paperwork, <laughs> because that was the one time I realized that, you know, I'm not going to get permission for this. <clears throat> I was like, yeah. no, the, the work is speaking for itself. I loved practicing. I loved spending hours in the practice room, discovering um, what I could do with the music, learning hard pieces, overcoming technical challenges. And I was by no means at the level of a music school student. This was, you know, just a school that happened to have a music program. But, you know, it was just something that gave me so much joy and something I enjoyed working hard at that I could, you know, even on a down day, I could get up and practice. And then even then the opportunity just kept coming. Um, my, I got to play as a soloist with my school's orchestra, uh, my teachers gave me that opportunity. I was doing big recitals. I was doing performances with my teachers um, for like, you know, high profile guests and whatnot. And so I was discovering that was like a huge thing for me. And I felt it, of course. Did my family necessarily feel it? That took a lot of convincing. And this was in 2014. And of course, you know, mom and dad were both like, okay, he's not doing medicine or engineering, but he's doing arts. <laughs> And, you know, of course, that iconic phrase in South Asian, you know, in Hindi and Urdu is what are other right. people going to say? Right. So, you know, the cultural community was like, oh, we heard that Rizwan isn't doing me medicine anymore. Are you sad? And, you know, they say that to my mom and my mom was so concerned about how other people were going to react to this. I think more than how I was going to fend for myself. And I think, you know, that speaks a lot to our culture you know, there is a benefit of living in a collectivist society where everyone kind of looks out for each other in that sense. However, there is a danger in the sense that we worry way too much about what other people say. For sure. And rather than focus on ourselves. And I think growing up here has helped informed me that, you know, that is sort of a toxic mentality to have. So I've always been that person that says, like, you know, this is me, forget about other people especially if you don't respect them. If, and so their opinions don't matter. The only opinions that matter is like, you know, should be the people that you know, care about you um, yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than the general log um, in that sense. So it took about two ish years for my parents. Been a to, tough two years. <laughs> oh yes. I nearly, when I graduated from undergrad, my parents put me into um, they talked to this family friend that, you know, we're not really in touch with them anymore. And um uh, for like possibly looking into like a, like a like a side career of IT, um, so I went to some training sessions at a company in a Capel, um, which is about an hour away from where I live. And um, I went for these training sessions for us uh, for like you know an automation software. And this was the hilarious thing. 
the person who was conducting the internship is Pakistani. The interns were Pakistani. The training sessions were in Urdu. Oh my God. And I'm a decent Urdu speaker. I understand Urdu, but if you're telling me to learn computer science in Urdu, Right. I was like to- learning calculus three in Urdu. <laughs> exactly. It was horrible. And I kept on telling them like, no, please keep the training sessions in English. And you know, one of the interns said like, you know, maybe you should practice Urdu at home. I'm like, girl, I speak Urdu quite well. But if you're telling me to learn computer science in Urdu, you might as well learn Spanish in Urdu at this point, because it's yeah, a right. different language and you're teaching it to me in a different language. Yeah. Um, so I jumped ship, um, but I did community cl- I did community college for about a semester. I did some computer science and some marketing courses. Um, I don't remember much of computer science, but the marketing did play a little bit of a role into what I do now. Um, but then afterwards, I was just like, you know what? I need to go back into music. This is what gives me joy. So 2016 spring, I decided to record an album. I did a few music videos. Um, since I wasn't in school, I was able to travel for like, you know, uh, I went, I did some international travel. Um, I went to Germany for the first time for a friend's wedding and I got to play there. Um, wow. And then when I came back, I had a, a little, t- um, I, I connected with this concertizing violinist in Dallas. Her name is Chi Yun Kim. And uh, she's very, uh, she's very famous in the classical world, went to Juilliard, studied with one of the greatest violin pedagogues who have ever lived. And I had known her because I'd met her at concerts. And so I told her, I was like, hey, I want some advice. Could I just, you know, meet with you for an hour or something like that? And she said, absolutely. So she was the one that then told me to go get my master's. And she said for three reasons. One, um, you get better. Obviously, you're in school. So you're getting, you know, you're going to get better in your abilities. Two, the recognition. Having that piece of paper that you have your master's goes a long way. And three, the networking that is involved. Mm. You know, the the along the process as you meet more people you talk to more people being in the school where you can meet more people and talk to more people um would be very helpful for me and ever then i this was around april 2016 then i embarked on my path to start for my master's um august 2016 this is sort of where the turning point happened it wasn't when i uh, started to do my master's this was actually when i went to perform in austria for the first time so Last four years, I've been going to a music festival in Austria in a city called Eisenstadt, which is a very musically historical city. And it's a festival that my mentor and undergrad was from that used to go to. But also this visiting this violist from Hungary used to sit um, used to sit first chair of this festival or he still does. But this violist actually came to my undergrad in my last semester at Austin College. And he came for like a one week workshop sort of thing and uh, some concerts and my mentor told me, follow him like a little, like, like a fly or like a honeybee sort of thing. And he inspired me so much. He told me, you know, you have a spark in your eyes when you play, you know, you have the drive. And hearing that from somebody who plays in like the number nine orchestra in the world um, has so much faith in you and you don't really have faith in yourself. Your parents are skeptical. And that's sort of when I realized that I wanted to pursue music professionally but I needed the ways to prove it. And so when I finally got to sit in an orchestra with him, with international players, and we're doing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in Austria, four or five days after visiting Beethoven's grave, you know that there's just so much magic and power that is happening. 
at that moment. And my parents came for this concert. They were like, you know, we've never been to Austria. We want to see our kid perform. Because uh, they're so proud parents, you know, even if they're not sure what's happening, they're still going to be proud of you. Um, but then they met my mentor. They met the Hungarian violist, Istvan. And they met my conductor um, uh, of this orchestra. And they all told them that, like, you know, Rizwan knows what he's doing. He's he's learning from the best. And, you know, now it's, it's just up now it's up to him, but we know he can do it. And I think that is what put my parents at ease, that they got some form of validation and confirmation for what I was doing. Yeah. And yeah. that even for me, because I was obviously introducing these people to my parents. So I was witnessing these conversations. So I could, you know, feel that that sense of like that niceness that I was getting like from what they were saying. And then just sort of this sheer relief that my parents yeah, were having like validation, like, that validation. I could see it in their eyes. And I was like, okay, I think my parents are finally on board. And then they were, they supported me all the way through. Um, uh, and you know, I ended up getting my master's. I went to Carnegie Mellon for two years um, and did my master's there um, in Pittsburgh. And, you know, they've, they, and they've been great about it. And I think it's this sort of, reformed that sort of South Asian mentality is yeah. not necessarily about what you're getting your education in is, are you getting educated in that form? Because one might argue that, you know, Oh, people go into arts because they're not academically, you know, proficient to do medicine. The thing is, it's just different ways. The brain is working. For you sure. have two different education styles. If you, if you put music theory and, you know, score studies in front of a medical practitioner, they're going to be very confused. Just like if you put, you know, viral pathogen pathways in front of musician, they're going to be confused. And that's just the way it is, unless you have someone that has studied a little bit of everything. But it's just different versions of education. And the fact that I could be supported to go to a high level, I think that's what eventually the South Asian dream, you know, a mentality of education should be is just supporting to education at the highest level, irrespective of what it is in yeah, that sense. Yeah. Wow. What a journey. For oh, that. I'm sorry. It's a, it's one of my favorites to tell just because I think it, it just offers a different insight yeah. to um, what we see on the surface. Right. But, you know, you see the artist, you can tell that they're passionate because you can hear it in the work, but you don't know their story. And, you know, I think that the story in like life is what informs our music. Like um, you can, like my teacher often would say, you can't play a certain piece unless you've had heartbreak or you've had a certain life event happen to you that, inf that brings out certain emotions to you to portray into a piece. Like, you know, it's very hard to play a piece that was written, like, you know, right before someone passes away when you're in your twenties. Yeah. So right. it's kind of that sort of thing. Like the life stage. Yeah, it's like you don't know what you've not lived enough to know it. I mean, you can still kind of you can still play at it. Are you playing it? You know, live a little first in that sense. Right. Now that that is amazing. And and just I want to highlight or underscore like how courageous the decision was for for you to do that because despite everything going on what your parents are doing, you know, it sounds like you you dabbled in like six careers before like realizing that okay, music is my passion, my joy, and I want to go all in on that. So, once you decided to go all in and you know, you said you created a few like music videos like you know, sometimes people have like paralyzed, be like, okay, there's so many things I can do, right? Music, 
runs the gamut of um, like thousands of things. How did you laser focus on, okay, this is what I want to do next. Like, okay, I've chosen music. Now what? That's a very good question. And you know, it only, it, it actually took me up until about 2020 to sort of laser focus on this. And then, you know, I had made this decision in 2015, 2016 timeframe. Um, and the way I think about it is you have to have one thing that's like your main focus. For me, it's classical viola. At the end of the day, you know, you have to know your roots. For me, classically, Western classically trained violist. That is what I am. So I play that literature primarily. I got into Bollywood because of my family. You know, not a lot of my family members know classical music. So I had, if, obviously, if you're a musician at a family gathering, you take on the role <laughs> of entertainment. So, yeah. you know, you have to play things that they understand. So that's how I got into, you know, South Asian music. And so now I, I've even taken it to another level and where I do like Kabbalis on the viola. I do Pakistani songs um, and all these other different things just to connect with my own demographic. Then it expanded to, you know, music that I like. I'm really into musical theater. Um, I've seen Wicked six times. Um, and so I love that genre. My second album was actually an all musical theater album. Mm. So it allowed me to connect with music I love listening to and also a different niche audience. Theater people are beloved of their art and it's almost like a cult. Uh, So I knew for a fact that I could get people to really enjoy listening to that. And I also enjoyed playing it. Um, But in that I discovered, you know, Hey, I want to sort of put my own stamp on things. And that's actually how I became a music producer in that sense. So I do a lot of classic, I do a lot more classical productions rather than, you know, your beats and hype bass drops and stuff like that. I mean, I love listening to that. I just don't make it. Um, Maybe if I learned how to, I would do it, but I kind of just like the sound of what I can do. And I always like to say, you know, I never want to change what people are hearing. I like to give a different perspective of how people hear it. Um, So that's how I do that thing. And with production, I learned all these other skills like orchestration, arranging. And that was sort of steps I was taking without putting a name on them. And then once I learned to expand the skills, I, um, I did those. Um, so in that sense, I kind of discovered what I wanted to do and everything was sort of related, which made it easier to kind of put together into a package. And I think that's, what's important. You can do a lot of things, but find ways to connect them because if you have different ideas, there's no cohesion. There's no sense of coming together and putting it into a nice little package, you know, as a classically trained violist playing a very versatile instrument, like in, viola is a versatile instrument in and of itself. You can do so much with it. You can discover the versatility through different avenues, but at some point they all have to come together. And that's what I discovered. And that's how I was able to sort of laser focus on that. And then I added a few extra things to it that don't exactly have to do with the music side, but kind of have to do with my sort of mental approach to the music. And in a way I still connect it to me because, you know, when I'm, I want to talk, I, at some point I want to have more conversations with people um, who are of South Asian descent who want to pursue arts careers, but maybe don't have the abilities to like, you know, maybe they're not getting family support or they don't have the right mentorship. Like, you know, I want to be able to have those conversations and I want my art and myself to advocate for that. So in the sense it's, uh, you know, I'm making sure that whatever I'm doing, I tie it all together And I actually didn't discover that 
element of my career until literally early this year, literally right before the pandemic hit. Wow. And that's why we, I was so excited to feature you here because there's probably so many listeners who have a music proclivity or, and, and want to explore it more, but it's like the, the deck is stacked against us. It's like these times of things, if you don't have mentors like yourself or people who have done it before, who've blazed the path, it's very tough to figure out like, okay, what do I do? How do I get through this? So that's great. Um, so with all these things that you're working on, right? You know, you, you, I like to say like you're multi-hyphenate, you're, you're a producer, you're a classic, classical musician, um, you know, you play concert pieces, you know, you're, in, you're in, in so many different things. Tell us like how you, what's a day look like for you? Like, or a week look like for you? How do okay, you structure? so uh, structure for me, um, I have a general structure, but okay. like it, it's not like a schedule. Um, although I am in school right now, so I do have my classes. I have my one-on-one lessons with my own teacher. Um, I also teach. So, um, I teach my students as well, all through zoom, but a day for me involves, you know, some form of fitness. I'm really big into fitness. I'm really big into wellness because, um, we are, uh, in some ways, little muscle athletes. So we have to take care of our bodies. Like, you know, we may not be football players wearing, you know, all those pads and everything and being tackled, but if you're not, you know, if your body's not warmed up and ready to go, you could hurt yourself playing this instrument. Um, so, you know, I very, I'm very particular about the wellness of my body. So I do, I do a lot of fitness. I making sure I keep myself active. So there's some element of fitness in my day. Um, I, when I practice, I work, I do a lot of warm ups. So I do some scales. Um, to solidify my ear and to solidify my fingerings. If I, um, if I'm doing um, a specific technique that I'm working on, then I'll do an exercise for that technique. For example, if I'm trying to strengthen my fourth finger or I'm trying to, you know, get this to do something different, I will work on an exercise that allows me to work on that. Then I tackle my literature. So what I like to do is I do my classical stuff first, because that's usually the stuff that's more mentally taxing. Um, And so what I do is I do all my hard stuff first and, you know, compartmentalize my time such that I can really hone in on those things. Um, And then, you know, I'll work on stuff that I'm familiar with and kind of do run throughs and other things. And I try to get about two to three hours a day of practicing in. And then if I have, if I have a gig coming up in which I'm playing, you know, let's say a Bollywood piece or like a pop piece, I'll work on that then because it more than likely not, it's something I've already worked on. So it's already in my brain. It's in my fingers. So it's just a matter of, you know, re-familiarizing myself with it. And, you know, then I, 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 you know, I schedule everything else in between like my meals, my social time. I sometimes seem to forget that, you know, Hey, I get uh, like, you know, viola's priority on certain days and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm still like, you know, like I like to do all the other things too. I do get practice guilt so if I'm out and about and I know I need to practice, I will feel it in my soul that I should be practicing. <laughs> I need to practice. Um, whenever auditions uh, come up or like I have a lot of things going on that are musically related, um, I often like to say I can't. The angel of music is very strict. And that's a line from Phantom of, and that's a line from Phantom of the Opera. I even have a T-shirt that says it. I didn't wear it today, but um, I just thought I. So like, that's typically a day for me. It's like, you know, I have rooted scheduled things like my classes and my teaching 
And then I kind of form my stuff around that. But if it's my free flowing days, I kind of just see where I'm at, you know, physically, mentally and approach it that way. Because, you know, you still have to let your body rest, you know, holding this position for a couple of hours after a while, even with the best setup, the best posture, the best technique, you'll st- you're still going to feel fatigue. Yeah, um, so, you know, you have to listen to, your, you have to listen to your body, um, yeah. and be able to go from that. And, you know, that was actually the hardest thing earlier on when this pandemic started was I, uh, because I didn't have goals, the structure basically went to garbage. Um, and so not having structure in the sense that, you know, my days kind of blended into each other. I was like, okay, is it, oh, I thought it was Monday. It's actually Friday or, you know, something like that. Um, but I think in that sense, it um, having that structure, but even the free flowing structure gives me flexibility to work with how I'm feeling. And I know how much I want to push myself that day, or if I, you know, maybe want to take it easy. And even in the practice setting, you know, practicing isn't always with the instrument. Sometimes it's listening to recordings and looking at the scores and, you know, seeing how your part fits in with your pianist or, you know, you're doing all these other different things too, um, to sort of inform your practice in that sense, rather than just physically practicing. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I just wanted to highlight, like, I love the holistic approach you have to your music, right? You know, it's an ecosystem at the end of the day. Everything has to be working well, your mind, your body, your spirit, oh, truly, your soul truly. for for you to be the best version of yourself. So it comes out in your music. So that is a, a really cool way to look at it. Um, one one question I wanted to ask you is one is like, you know, when when you, you pursued something that was your passion, your love, like something that you really found your joy, mm-hmm. is there any days or or weeks you feel like man this is tough like this feels like work to me where it feels like um you know because sometimes i have hobbies where i do too much i'm like oh god i don't want to do this anymore right now do you have days like that and can you talk us through 100 percent burnout is very much a real thing and i have felt it plenty of times even in the last month or so where you know i just don't want to practice right don't want to you know excuse me, work on this piece, or I don't want to touch the viola. And that very much happened. Uh, you know, viola was a pat is, was, and is a passion for me. It is also the source of my stress at times. And I think what allows me to sort of escape that conundrum is by keeping things interesting. Like, you know, if I don't want to practice my audition repertoire, I can work on my next pop song, or I can work on my next, mm. uh, you know, uh, a different thing, just to kind of keep my brain going and keeping myself in that sort of creative zone. So I don't feel like I take myself for granted or I don't feel useless in my creative space. But at least the energy is still there. And if the energy isn't there, you know what? Take a walk, go lift some weights, go for a swim. I do something like that just to physically and mentally separate myself from everything. And, you know, sometimes I'll go, like, pick up food from my favorite restaurant or something like that. Like, yeah, I try yeah. to make sure that I remember at, at the end of the day, and I, and I often – I'm very peeved about this on social media, you know, when you have artistic based Instagram accounts or, you know, stuff like that, people follow you for your art, but people seem to forget that you're also a human being, which you you as a human being, maybe you like going for long runs with your shirt off or, you know, you like, um, you know, you like eating big plates full of cake and stuff like that. People don't always follow you to see that side, but there is that side of you. And I think when you remember that, hey, I'm a human being before I am an artist, you can kind of ground yourself again 
and sort of come back up to where you need to be in your creative space, as opposed to just hoping and praying that, you know, oh, I need to get through this, get through this. Because even if you need to work on something, there's no point working on it if your brain is not in it. You might, you're, you're going to waste your time. You're going to tire yourself out even more and you're going to get frustrated with yourself. So I think, and I think just in general, if you need time away from the instrument, give yourself that time. Don't give yourself too much time because yes, you do have deadlines and you have to keep yourself in some sort of a creative zone. But if you need to step out of the zone for a little bit, do that, do the needful. And, you know, I, and I, I learned that a lot during my master's degree. That, you know, if there were days where I couldn't focus or the instrument was going out of tune all the time and, you know, this was happening, you know, it's okay to separate yourself for a little bit because then when you come back with a cleaner mind and a much more fresh mind, your productivity is a lot better. Um, And I think that is something that isn't stressed enough, Um, especially in the music world. They're like, you know, even if you're tired or you're frustrated, you still need to push through. And I'm like, while yes, that is true, because if you do have deadlines, but music is much more than just physically picking up the instrument. It's a mental journey. It's an emotional journey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you make yourself having to feel emotions to make art, it's very draining. Like, you know, you're bringing up some old memory or you're bringing up some old sensation that you're pouring into, you know, this big emotionally driven piece. Um, you need to be careful. Um, it's not because it's not just physically being, uh, fatigued, it's mentally being exhausted. Um, and that's another, and it's another element of, the, of just listening to your body and knowing where you are in that day, that time, that frame of yeah. mind. And you, and the thing is, usually if you have goals, if you set goals for yourself, and if you know, you have deadlines, you do a pretty good job staying on track and you don't end up burning out too much. But if you inundate yourself with things, then yes, the burnout can happen. Yeah, there's like a there's like a window where it's like a, in the perfect zone. If you do too much, you know your productivity declines, your mental state, your creativity. But if you do too little, like you get farther and farther away from the instrument and you know your goals. So it's like that sweet spot right right in the middle. Exactly. Um, cool. So, can you give us, Rizwan, a peek under the hood of like what you're working on right now? Anything that you're excited about that that you can share with the with the with everyone? A lot of things are happening. I'm in the process of releasing the music video. So um, there's a really amazing song from this 2011 Bollywood movie called Kun Faya Kun. It's a Kavali. And I basically classically reimagined it. So I wrote it rather than, you know, for harmonium and drum and tabla and those sort of style of instruments. I wrote it for piano, strings and flute. And I produced it on my, I, I produced it. In an, as an orchestra on my computer, I recorded it. Um, I did half of the videography last week and I'm finishing the rest of it today. And then I'm putting it together and releasing it like October 9th or 10th. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, one of those days I'm releasing that. Um, I have a, yeah, so I have that going on. One of my bigger undertakings. Um, I, have a re- um, I have a recital coming up in Las Vegas because I'm fin- my school is through Las Vegas. Um, I had moved there and I'm back here in Dallas because of the pandemic. So um, I'm preparing literature for that um, to perform. One of the pieces that I'm performing on that is actually a Brazilian uh, piece for viola and piano that was actually written for one of my teachers at Carnegie Mellon, and she got a Latin Grammy nomination for it. And so getting to play it is 
I mean, I heard it for the first time and I was like, that's a piece that I need to play because it was just exactly my vibe, my energy. I could, I knew how I wanted to make music with it. So the fact that I get to play that piece and I'm actually sending her a recording later um, in October and then we're going to zoom and she's going to give me some comments on it. Um, so I'm excited for that because it'll be just yeah. great to, you know, get it from the source herself. And I've, and she's been a very good mentor to me. Um, what else am I working on? And then I'm, I'm getting ready to audition for my doctoral degree. Um, oh. So yes, you can get a doctorate in music. Uh, it's called a DMA, Doctorate of Musical Arts. And um, so I have literature that I'm working on for that. The Brazilian piece is one of those pieces, um, as well as a few others, which are all some of the hardest pieces I've ever played. But that's all part of the challenge. And I love it because years ago, if you asked me, uh, can you play this piece? I would say, don't ask. But now I actually like, hey, I have the potential of doing something great with this music. Right, um, right. And, you know, I welcome the difficulties. I welcome that challenge in the sense that, you know, I have a lot of things, you know, that I can bring out more of myself. And, yeah. like, you know, you realize your, realize your hidden power waiting to come out right. um, in that sense. And so, like, those are my, t- my three big undertakings right now. And I'm trying to also do some informative ch- um, conversational videos for my YouTube channel. Like I did one on mental health on, um, and, and like, so, and like a, like a Bollywood sort of thing. I did. Um, I want to do this one about how to play the instrument a specific way. I want to talk a little bit about mental health. I want to talk a little more about mental health. I want to talk a little bit more about South Asians perspective on music because Good. that's a conversation for a completely different day. <laughs> but I, um, I think in that sense, you know, I, I kind of just like keeping myself busy and I've always considered myself as an educator, even if I'm not teaching viola, but I like educating my perspective, um, people of my perspective and hopefully they can learn from what I've done. And that's why I want to, you know, do these conversational videos on YouTube, which fingers crossed I will get around to. <laughs> no, right. Like oh, we, how do you fit it in with all the other things you're doing? Right. <laughs> oh yeah. And you know, like I'm trying to take online, like other online courses just to keep myself like, you know, just to keep a, like a wide variety of scope. And I'm like, this is hard. It's very hard. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things that you said, I, I, I really liked was like, you know, if you ask yourself two, three years ago, like, could I play this music or this piece? And you're like, you know, there's no way in hell. But now you're like, I have the talent and the ability to do that, take it on this challenge. And it goes back to a point I think about a lot is like, it's very, you know, we're our worst judge for ourselves and to, you know, track our progress. Like if you look at it, like, am I improving? I don't know. But then if you look at the timeline, like, am I better then what, what I was a month ago, three months ago, one year ago, three years ago, you're like, holy cow, I've made a ton of progress. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and it, to take those moments to say like, okay, I have made a dent in the universe and this, something that I'm passionate about. And I can use that as a stepping stone to my next thing. I think it's really cool. And, and taking time to do that, you know, if you're playing at the you know, concert level of viola or anything else in life is, is super important. 100%. One of my favorite violinists, actually, her name is Sarah Chang, and I grew up listening to her. Actually, because of her, I want I, I ended up learning a lot of the music that I play now. Um, but she said in an interview that the pressure she puts on herself for concerts is to give a better concert today than she did yesterday, and then tomorrow always has to be better than today. And that has really stuck with me, and, it's, and it goes beyond the concert stage. It's, you know, being a good person. It's, you know 
being just, you know, good at whatever you're doing in life. It's just that, you know, can you be better than who you were yesterday? And can you be better tomorrow than your today's self? And it puts you in this perspective of constantly growing that, you know, you're, you're on this journey and not trying to reach a destination, which is again, another reconciling factor for me with music, because when I was in the sciences, it was, it felt like I was just chased, like trying to get to a destination and then it's like, okay, I just studied for this test. And like, you know, I get an A and forget everything that I studied rather than, you know, Hey, I played a performance of a piece. I give myself a B. How do I get myself to an A of the same piece? So it's like, you know, you're constantly learning through that same, that same medium. Yeah, that's great. I love that, that quote of, you know, have a better concert today versus uh, the one yesterday. That's really cool. 100%. Cool. So let's uh, move to the last part of our interview, which is our, our rapid fire questions. And these are questions we've asked all our guests and we got some really fantastic responses. So first question for you, Rizwan, is, um, is there an item that you've bought recently, item or service that has dramatically improved your life? Hmm. I think there's a combination of things. I mean, apart from the fact that about a year ago I acquired my new viola. And so, (laughs) and so that's huge, (laughs) very huge thing. And I'm, you know, discovering more and because it's a brand new instrument, it was literally like, I literally bought it a couple of weeks after my friend finished making it. So it's still brand new. He's a baby. Um, His name is Simba, if you're curious. Um, And so I've, and so that's like definitely informed how I play. Like a lot of things that I can do now are just a a lot easier and a lot more manageable because I have a better instrument. Um, Having moved. Is there any time where we have to break in an instrument or does it? 100%. Even if it's an old instrument, the instrument has to adjust to you as a player. So in that sense, like, you know, I know what my technique sounds like in general. So if the instrument is not used to that, it'll begin to develop that. And then together we develop a sound in that sense. Interesting. That's yeah. Right. Like we develop our sound, we develop a color palette that we want to, you know, use and paint different notes for music in that sense. Um, yeah. Very artistic. <laughs> uh, uh, other things I, uh, when I moved back to Dallas, I decided to sort of set up myself better for my recordings and all these different things. So I bought myself a better microphone. I bought myself a little reflection filter with some foam. So I'm not, so that way I can have a much more professional, better setup. Um, just so I can convey my art better and just in, and, um, yeah, that's about it. I mean, I think the biggest thing on that list is the new viola. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like that, that, that's like your shining light, right? That's uh, oh, 100. everything, everything goes through that instrument. So that I, I agree. That would probably be the biggest um, item. For Absolutely. Um, okay. This question is, I love this question. Um, and I'm very excited to hear your response. When you think of a South Asian person you look up to in your field, who would you say comes to mind and why? I would have to say ARMON. Uh, Apart from the fact that I'm working on Gun Fire Gun, and that's one of his songs. And, you know, I came across like a meme. It wasn't a meme, but it was like a little text thing that said, like, you know, I don't think he realized what he was creating and the power in that piece when he wrote it. And it's true. Um, also, he and I share the same birthday. We're both born on January 6th. Um, so I think that's pretty amazing. But I think also staying true to his authentic self. 
like no like Bollywood is an industry in and of itself that's kind of crazy and there's plenty of behind the scenes videos that'll explain it but I think in that sense what I've learned just from seeing his trajectory is that he stayed true through his authentic self as a composer and as a human being um like and like little things like you know like maybe like the religion, like the religion of Islam, because he's all, because he is, a, he is Muslim, has like, you know, influenced how he like runs events or, you know, how he writes his music and all these other things. And I think that's the best way to live life. Like, yeah, you may not get every opportunity, but every opportunity you get is going to be great because you don't have to compromise yourself for that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And you can still change people's lives through your work. Um, yeah it's one of my goals to meet him and I hope that he sees my version of Gunfire Clan just cause I know it's oh, going to yeah. go. Uh, it's so be- I'm, I, I would love to expand on what you said about the Gunfire Clan of he didn't know what he was creating. Like, can you explain what you mean by that? You know, um, for a lot of South Asians, if we're born and raised in this country, we do know our languages. We do, but we may not understand the depth of the language. Okay. And I think I understood the depth of his piece once I actually just started researching it a little bit more. Like I looked up the translation, I looked up his premise for it. There's a lot of um, Islamic verses in it. Um, But there's a section of the song that, you know, I understood it when, I mean, I, I knew the words generally when I heard it for the first time, but when I looked up the translation, I just started crying because I was just like, this piece can be written for anyone who's just, you know, living life and trying to just find light in their darkness. And that's what I think the song means. The lyric goes like, you know, you created me in this world. I did not fit into this world, yet you embraced me. And so, like, you know, you think about that, like there's so much power to that. And yeah, our language and our language has a sense of emotional drive to it. And I think mm-hmm. almost every language does, maybe with the exception of English. Um unless you know you're a very gifted songwriter in that language in English. And I do know plenty, but I just think, you know, when you hear our like that emotional grounding with those kind of words, with that style of music, it really just paints a picture of, you know, something that people can just emotionally like wrap themselves around. And I just think of that song, like a big warm hug. It's just so powerful in that sense. And, you know, it just makes you speaks to your soul. 100%. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I I don't think I've listened to it. So after this, I'm going to go check it out and put it on my, my Sabin playlist. There you go. Um, Okay, cool. Um, Next question is what is a movie or book that has had the most impact on you? Oh, other than Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, so confession, I am very bad with movies and, um, uh, I mean, I'm trying to get better with books. I bought a few, I just haven't gotten around to reading them. I think this is going to sound very cliche. This is going to sound very cliche, but I'm going to give you two answers. Um, one that's a, um, one that's a movie and one that's actually a musical because, um, I feel like it's just a different medium of expressing something of similar ideas. Um, so the first movie actually would be Coco, being um, the the, um, the Disney movie, yep. and because I'm fluent in Spanish, I actually watched it in Spanish, and so um, just it made me appreciate the emotionally the emotional power that the language has in that setting, 
but also the character of Miguel who wants to pursue music, but, you know, the idea of music is shunned by his family because of, you know, the past or whatever, um, which later on gets clarified. But at the end, you know, he's, um, he's singing that song, um, El Latido de Mi Corazón, which is the Spanish name of that song, which ends the movie. And he um, is, you know, singing to his family and, you know, he's playing the guitar and you see all the, the relatives that have come to visit them on Dia de los Muertos. And I just feel that power because, um, for example, my grandfather passed away in 2017 and he was one of my biggest fans, actually. And um, when I think about it in that sense that, you know, like he w- um, I think about that all the time when I play. And I just think about, you know, me when I'm with my family and I'm playing for everybody and I'm sharing that joy music brings to me. And I'm seeing the joy that they're experiencing from the music. And so I see that arc of his character in me. Uh, and, that, cool. and that's why it's influenced me so much. And like, even in, um, in the movie, it says like, you know, family's everything, you know, never forget how much your family loves you, no matter what you're doing in life. And I think that's like, at the end of the day, as, skept- as skeptical as my family might be about me pursuing music, I know that they have that faith in me and they love me for it. Um, yeah. The other influential um, piece for me is hands down the Broadway musical Wicked. Um, when uh, back in 2014, I was learning um, Let It Go on viola for, um, um, for a non-classical concert I was doing at my school. And in the recommended videos, was a song called Defying Gravity, uh, which is from Wicked. And it's also sung by Idina Menzel, who uh, plays Elsa in Frozen. And so I just listened to this song and I am an emotional wreck by the end of it because literally every lyric of that song was relatable to me in my life at that current moment when I was listening to it. And so I hadn't seen Wicked at that point, but then I was, I, you know, binge listened that cast album and then um, back then in early 2016, the musical was on tour and came to Dallas. And I finally saw it and it honestly just changed my life. Apart from that song, um, Alphaba, the character who sings that song, she's green. She's the Wicked Witch of the West, but it's told from that different perspective. And she's, you know, she's hated for being green. She's hated for being different. She has a huge sense of empathy and a different perspective than what other people see the world as. And, you know, there, it, it speaks to people, you know, who have felt different, who have felt that, you know, that their sense of being different is not, you know, the norm. And, you know, growing up being with other South Asian students in my high school years, I remember just being like throwing a party, jumping up and down when I was like able to leave high school and not be around those people because I was Alphaba in, in that group. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, it's the reason why I've seen that musical six times. And I have no shame in saying that, you know. Good for you. Yeah. And what's even cooler is Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Defying Gravity and the music for that uh, show, also went to Carnegie Mellon, um, where I went to, my, where I went for my master's. And when I first saw Wicked, the two leads, Alphabet and Glinda, were played by Carnegie Mellon alumni. Really? So... I feel very blessed in that sense. And it was almost like the universe was just pointing sure. in that direction. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's, those are the two things that have really just influenced my life in that sense. And even beyond the music, I mean, Define Gravity has a special place in my heart. I even have it tattooed on me, but yeah. in that sense, it's kind of like one of those things that, you know, it's, those, it's just that thing that really sticks to you um, right. in, in your soul more than anything. 
That's amazing. And um, I've seen Wicked too, and I had the same feeling, not six times, but I was just like, <laughs> wow, this was amazing. Like, um, I, I was, and I got to see it on Broadway too, which yeah. was, which was really neat. Um, one of the questions that I thought about that I'd love to hear th- your response is, you know, book, music, theater, is there a piece or pieces of music that has just changed your life or just been like such an impact on you that you can share? Um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which okay. may come off as consumerism to the classical world because it is very popular, but it is popular for good reason. I mean, it was written towards the latter part of his life. He had already lost his hearing and he heard these beautiful melodies in his ear. And then he knew how to use Schiller's poetry to, you know, bring the last movement to life, which is that iconic Ode to Joy theme that everybody knows. Um, and it was the first piece I played when I went to Austria back in 2016. So that piece is always going to have a special place in my heart. I was supposed to play it this year, but, you know, pandemic. Um, and so, you know, fingers crossed, I get to play it next year. If everything, you know, goes well and we can have concerts again. Um, it's also another tattoo that I have <laughs> in that sense. Cool. But it's, it's one of those pieces that, you know, there's something for everybody in that piece. And just the way he wrote it, you know, like... I remember when I was studying it in um, my symphonic literature class, there was like moments where my teacher was like, okay, today is a good day to be a violist because we're playing this melody. Today is a good day to be this musician because you're playing this melody. So, you know, it's just something that, you know, when you hear it and you're just, you know, you close your eyes and you just listen and you think about it. Um, that to me in and of itself has its own power. And, you know, I've played the piece twice. I played it once at Carnegie Mellon as well. And so it just, it had the same, it, it gave me the same amount of joy in Pittsburgh as it did in Austria. Um, maybe a little bit more cause I was a better musician at the time. So I could play it better and execute yeah. it better. And then um, another piece for me, I, and I liked, and I'm thinking classically just because, you know, sticking to my roots in that sense probably has to be um, Barber's Adagio for strings, um, American composer. And he wrote this very slow, beautiful piece for strings. And it has this huge buildup, which almost sounds like, you know, ascending to heaven. It just, the way it just comes from the ground and just into the sky. And I got to play that last year in Austria as well. And what we did was we played it, we had the strings play, but we also had a choir sing with us as we did the piece. And they were kind of just doing vocals, vocal awes, while we were playing and it was just it it's definitely a thing I won't forget because I think about it I'm just like in that hall in that space and just that sound that's just around you um I remember I first time I heard it it was um I heard at the at the Dallas Symphony they were playing it for someone's memorial and I just remember just how powerful even that piece was to me and like I don't typically cry when I hear a lot of music I mean sometimes I do but it's one of those things that just sort of pushes you to the back of your seat and because you just feel that emotional weight and that power that you just feel paralyzed for like, you know, those nine minutes or, you know, however long the piece is. And then when you wake up from reality, wake up back to reality and you're just like, what did I experience? Dude. Yeah. And that's the power of music versus some other art forms that, that is just like, you know, it's so like primal to who we are as people, right? Like, you know, how we've evolved and like when music really hits you in a, in a place that you didn't know or mm-hmm. expect, it's like an ethereal experience. As you said, you're like, you're, you're literally like on a roller coaster and you're like strapped in your seat because you can't move because the, the power of 
you know, the music and the melody. So mm-hmm. that's amazing that that does that for you. That's, that's cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Last couple of questions. And this, this question, um, you know, I, I'm very interested to know your response is um, what advice would you give to an up and coming South Asian person who wants to pursue music or who wants to, you know, consider it more professionally, what advice would you give them and why? Um, biggest thing I would tell them is work hard. See your, the biggest advice and I'd say, and this is just the first piece of general, you need to see yourself doing it. If you can see yourself doing it, excuse me, and nothing else, go for it. Work hard, get good training, surround yourself with the best resources, talk to everybody you can talk to, you know, listen to good recordings, immerse yourself in the best form of the art to inform yourself. And, you know, don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to people who say that, you know, you can't make a living off of this. Don't listen to people who, you know, tease you for it. And if anything, if it gets to you, use it as fuel to prove them wrong. Um, That's what I do. And it's one of the most satisfying things ever when you can prove someone wrong because they hated on your work. But that shouldn't be your goal. Your goal should be just doing the best version of the art that you can and be the most authentic artist that you can be. Because there's plenty of other people out there doing things and you don't want to walk in their shoes. Yes, you may want to learn from them, but you don't want to be them. You want to be you because you want to be the one that's contributing to the artistic world that's out there. And you want to, and that's the people you that want to fall in love with you in that sense. They want to, you know, be surrounded by your art, not your version of someone else's art. Yes, you can be inspired by other people to do art, but you have to put your own personal self in it. Yeah. So the biggest thing is hard work, you know, forget the naysayers, turn it into fuel and, you know, put your authentic stamp on a piece. That's amazing. Yeah. That is, is so, that is something that people need to hear more often because um, there's people like, you know, you see a trend like, Oh, do I need to copy that to be, you know, great or be, um, you know, uh, like identified or, or notice. And the thing is, you know, be yourself, learn from them, but be at the end of the day, be yourself. Um, I'm curious to know, is there anything tactically you, you recommend? Or if, if I just want to take the first step, what's my first step? Discover your artistic voice first, you know, whether it's an instrument, whether it's singing. Yeah. Um, that's the first step. And for everyone, it take, it's different. I know people who start on one instrument, switch to another. But, and it's funny because people talk about talent and, you know, hard work and nurturing talent. My thing is that talent starts with your first inclination to make that step. Mm. So discover your artistic voice and then hone that voice, train that voice, learn how to express with that voice. That's the first step. Always find your artistic voice. I like that. That's great. Thank you. Okay. Um, any final ask for the audience, Rizwan? Anything you'd like to leave them with before we close? Um, surround yourself with the best art you can find. 
art that speaks to your soul, art that allows you to feel different things in this world because it develops your sense of worldview. It develops your sense of emotions, you know, support your artistic friends. Um, you know, if they have something coming up, if, you know, they're releasing an album, if they have a concert, you know, your share button on social media still works, you know, make them feel like their friends care about the work that they do because they've put a lot of time into it. They've put a lot of effort into it. And, you know, Beyonce can have a million followers, but, you know, if you, if you, if, and, you know, she won't miss if you don't share her album coming out, but your friend can benefit if you know, you share their work. Um, and and not just supporting them by sharing their work, but supporting them by also encouraging them. I think it's like the I, I think somebody wrote that you know support them in private, praise them in public. Be those type of people for your artistic friends. And then if you want to go into arts yourself, find your voice of expression, whether it's musically, visually, whatever it might be, and then just discover yourself and be the best version of it. Yeah. And then I think this, this last one kind of just ties it all together. It's just be unapologetically yourself through your art. You know, there's plenty of recordings of, you know, this piece, this song, but what are you bringing to that piece or that song? If you are taking it upon yourself to learn it, to perform it and to incorporate it into part of your life, you need to put part of your life into this piece and share that with people and make yourself be remembered for it. And I think that is what will also just give you the most gratification from the work. So that's what I would tell people. Wow. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Thank you for everything you've been, you're doing and I cannot wait to, you know, see all this, the, the amazing work you're going to put out, the, the music video and, and everything else. Where can people find you if, we, if people want to learn more and, you know, get more involved in your world? Um, so I have a website. It's um, so my website, my Instagram and my Facebook all are similar names. So you just have to remember one name, type it into whatever search engine. Yeah. Uh, and we'll include all the links at the, at our. In awesome. Our so uh, my website is RizwanJaganiViolist.com. I'm on Instagram, RizwanJaganiViolist. And I'm on Facebook as well as RizwanJaganiViolist. I post on all those platforms. I need to be better about updating my website, but at least on the social media ones, I'm always posting things. I post previews of some of the stuff I'm working on. I post some humorous things um, <laughs> as well. Like, you know, um, like the like the, the 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 TikTok style videos, I, I I have a little bit of fun with that every now and then. Um, but it's yeah, so I that's where you can find me. Um, you know, give me a follow, give me some love, share my work. You know, get more people to see what you know South Asian musicians can do. Um, but also classical musicians, because yeah, you do have you know, uh, like you have singers, you have DJs, you don't have violists. So uh, I hope that I can also offer just a unique musical insight. Right. Um, perspective. In, addi- in addition to just, you know, the art itself. Yeah, great. 
Uh, yeah, so we'll include all these links. So definitely check out, check out Rizwan. He's doing some amazing work. But thank you again for being part of South Asian Stories and, and, and sharing your story with everyone. Absolute pleasure. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.